Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team welcome welcome to the brett boone podcast explore the mind of mlb all-star silver slugger and gold glove winner brett boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports now Now, up to to bat brett boone welcome to the boone podcast i'm your host brett boone and today on the program i sit down with a longtime big league scout currently special advisor for the Oakland A's. He signed some of the biggest players in MLB. You probably know him from the movie Moneyball. You know the name from the movie Moneyball. Ladies and gentlemen, the real Grady Fuse. Uh, Grady, thanks for coming on the program. <laughs> nice entry. I like it. Um, I'll tell you, and, and, and I'm being honest here. There's not a lot of guys you know. For those of you listening to the Boone podcast uh grady and myself worked together grady's been working on that side of the ledger for a lot of years i worked with the oakland a's briefly uh, i believe it was 2014 and 15 there's not a lot of guys and grady will back me up on that that brett boone thinks could teach him about the game of baseball or any intricacy of the game of baseball this guy actually grady fuson taught me some things i got admitted i hate to admit it but i do uh it's killing you it was great. It was great. It was. It was another aspect of my life, uh, something outside the box, something I never done before, and uh, it was a lot of fun. But Grady, you taught me some things. Well, I'm glad that was a tough call. You were a stubborn client. And, and I remember when we first <laughs> met. We, we first met. You you would look at me. You're kind of sizing me up, like, all right, what does this guy know? What you know what's how's how's brett going to be in this arena you know helping young kids uh mostly i did a lot of my work with the young a ball guys we had a great group at the at the time uh olsen with the atlanta braves comes to mind matt chapman is the third baseman uh with the toronto blue jays but we had a good group back then and i remember you told me you said booney what do you think? You, you, you test me. You just ask me questions. Not that you necessarily wanted to hear my answer, but how I answered the question. And you said, you're a quick read. A lot of you guys are like that. You come on the scouting scene and you just think, oh, I know if he's a big leaguer in two minutes. Explain a little bit what you meant by, by, by little things like that. Well, I just, I just think as you grow in the game, whether it's player development or scouting, and <clears throat> we, we're all opinion-oriented type people. But the game of baseball is is so difficult. It's it's unjudging. It's uh, it's hard to take great tools and turn them into great players. Um, it's hard to make great players without good tools. 
And sometimes those things don't collide on time. And even the sharpest looking player in the world can have, you know, mental issues, uh, competitive issues, emotional issues uh, that hinder them, you know, reaching their potential. At the same time, we've all seen the marginally skilled player that has so much passion, so much interest, so much work ethic that makes himself uh, a decent big leaguer. So it, it comes and goes in a lot of different ways. And sometimes patience, I mean, we're always evaluating, but patience as far as making that ultimate call, I think just takes some time. Uh, I remember the question, and, and I still refer to this today in baseball, you know, when I'm having baseball conversations and, and the topic of scouting comes up. And this was a real moment for me. I remember we were talking about a player, and this is one of the questions I'm talking about. He said, Booney, who's that guy remind you of? And I kind of looked at you like, what the hell is this guy asking me who he reminds me of? I don't know, Grady. What does it matter who he reminds me of? And you said, because if he doesn't remind you of any big leaguer, he's probably not a big leaguer. That was a moment for me where I went, wow, that's a great point. Because yeah. if you haven't seen it out there, he's either a unicorn or he's not a big leaguer. And, and I thought that was, that was one of the things I talk about I learned from you. That was a moment where I just went, that's a great point. What am I thinking? <laughs> you know, I, I got to learn a little bit more about scouting. Well, you know, when you go sit in a big league ballpark for as many years as I have, they look different. Yeah. Uh, they look different than AAA. They look different than AA. And they different, definitely look different than A-ball guys. So in our case, I actually, me and you went together a bunch of college games prior to the draft. And that's, you know, that's the amateur level. So that's, you know, they just look different. They act different uh, in the big leagues. And there's so many different facets to scouting. I want to cover a few of them with you today. You know, there's that ultimate decision-making on draft day. There's evaluating uh, big league players for a trade. I mean, there's so many different things that I, that I want to get to. Uh, but first, before we get into the scouting aspect, uh, I've had a bunch of guys on the, on the podcast from those Moneyball years. Chobby was on, uh, Zito, Giambi, David Justice, uh, Johnny Damon on. I asked them all the same question. I'm going to ask you this. How accurate did Moneyball portray the real story? Uh, very little. I, I know that, that uh, Billy Bean played, uh, uh, Brad Pitt played Billy Bean, so it wasn't that realistic. I know Billy loved that. Uh, you were played by a, a guy by the name of Metlock. Ken Metlock. Give me the give me the pros and the or not the pros and the cons. Give me the semi truths or the stuff that wasn't true at all. Because I thought it was a great movie. I thought it was well done. But that's Hollywood. Yeah, I think the biggest truth is that there were a couple of players uh, on that club and even traded for that uh, that Billy basically went off analytics. You know, a lot of on base, a lot of slug. Uh, you know, whiff rates, things like that, that were evident in the game. But the mistruth is when you look at that club and how that was built, that club was, you know, it was built around Zito, Mulder, Huddy, Shabby, Ramon Hernandez. I mean, the, the, the list goes on about kids that, you know, we drafted, signed, and developed in the system that became the core of that team. 
There was no Coke machine in the clubhouse that you had to pay for. Yeah, that was the big question. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ron Washington and Billy did not go up to Hatterberg's house in Seattle. He was never told playing first base is easy. <laughs> um, it was the rent winning streak real? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things I missed because that was the year I left and went to Texas as the assistant GM. But, um, you know, I, I think when you sat back and you looked at the movie as a uh, entertainment piece, I think I thought it was done pretty good. You know what? A lot of people, I think I told you, originally there were a few of us that were going to play our own part with a different director. So Steve Soderbergh, who did Ocean's Eleven and um, a couple other big things, he was the original director. And Paul D. Podesto, who played the analytic guy, uh, or was supposed to in the movie, uh, had a bunch of issues day in and day out about how he was going to be presented in the movie. So that's why he was the only guy that wasn't going to play his part. And apparently Sony just got so tired of it. The day they went to film, uh, day one in Phoenix, they canceled and shot the movie down. And the movie went into a trash bin and Brad Pitt bought it a year and a half later for, I, I understood, 10 million bucks. He wanted to do it that bad. New director, I think his name was Bennett Miller, Emmett Miller, Bennett Miller. And uh, he's a guy that doesn't use real characters in his productions. So. <clears throat> everything went a different path. Were you involved at all? Did they ask, did did they come to you and interview you and say, hey, we want to be as realistic as we can, or were you kept out of it? I was pretty much kept out of it. I mean, Ken Medlock called me uh, once or twice, and there wasn't much to it. You could tell this guy had played enough uh, baseball or something where he had some answers to everything already. So yeah. I didn't really have much to do with it. Hollywood guys, it's fun. Yeah. I've, um, all right, I want to talk about the draft. My, I, I remember my draft story. I remember Kenny Compton. I'm sure you know, remember him. Sure. Uh, my Seattle, Seattle scout, who I tell to this day, the greatest scout that ever lived. And and Kenny likes that. And he laughs about it. But everybody has a draft story. Uh, you know, I got drafted late out of high school. I got drafted lower than I thought I should have been drafted out of college. In the end, it all didn't matter. Um, but let's talk about that time we, we did work together and it was my first, <clears throat> my first, uh, taste of scouting because, because I was, we were, we were both working for the, for the Oakland A's. Uh, I was working with the kids at the lower levels. And, and I remember he said, Booney's going to go to the SEC tournament and kind of get my first introduction to scouting what it's like. I, I remember <laughs> Grady would say to me, all right, Booney, keep your eye on, see what you see this. And I'm coming to you with freshmen and sophomores and saying, Grady, I really like that guy. And you're like, Booney, he's a freaking sophomore. We're not here for that. We're here for the draft coming up in a week. Um, grandpa was a scout forever. My yeah. grandfather with the Boston Red Sox last 40 years of his of his life. And he would, you know, try to give me the ins and outs. But, you know, as a player at that time, you don't want to hear from Gramps. You just look at Gramps and he tells you about this kid. And I'll say, yeah, Gramps, you don't know what you're doing. How tough, how tough, <laughs> how tough could scouting be? You know, and he would just kind of look at me like, oh, Brett, you, you don't know anything. And and really, you don't. You think you do, but you don't. Um, 
That was a big learning process for me. I got to sit down with some guys that have like yourself that had done it for a long time, <clears throat> guys that necessarily didn't play the game for a long time, but have been at this for a long time. I remember little things. I, I forget the gentleman I was sitting with, but he said, Booney, you got to sit here and be patient and you got to watch. And then you got to come back and you got to watch again. Well, not necessarily in my case. I was just there for right before the draft. But he says throughout the course of this of the year leading up to the draft, he said, I've seen this guy 20 times and I look for this, this, this and this. And it was kind of a tutelage for me. It was kind of it was kind of cool. Um the process behind it. Cause it, like I said, completely different entity, completely different uh, subject matter than anything I've dealt with in my baseball life to that point. Um, but let's just break it down. Basic. When did, when does a scout, when does a scout start looking at kids? And I'm talking about, uh, area scouts. That was your first job in 1982. You were an area scout for the, yeah. for the Oakland A's. Let's break it down to the basics of the people listening to the Boom Podcast. When do you start looking at kids? Well, in, in today's game, there's so many things going on in the summer prior to their senior year. So you have all these showcases throughout the country uh, that involve uh, kids that are going to go into their senior year. Most of them have been seen before because along the the trails as an area scout. Uh, you go in to see Brett Boone at USC, and by chance you see a sophomore shortstop uh, that's going to be eligible next year, and you start, and you like him, and you start taking notes. So it kind of starts like that, and then the closer you get into your senior year, um, you know, you have things during the winter, uh, and then boom, the spring starts, and here we go. But most of it in today's game is that summer uh, before your senior year. Now, back in your day, and certainly in my day, there wasn't anything. There wasn't anything like this. There wasn't all these showcases throughout the country: East Coast Showcase, West Coast Showcase, Midwest. I mean, our area scouts are leaving the draft after six months of work, and they get about a week at home before they start hitting all these showcases. We didn't have that when we were coming through the game. You know, you might have played on a Legion team or something like that and got exposed that way, but you weren't able to ever find anything where you could put yourself um, in the middle of all these other talented young kids. Uh, you know, they're, they're going into their senior year. Same with college. You know, you got the Cape. Uh, you used to have Alaska. You got the Northwoods League where all these freshmen and sophomores go to play in college. So. That's where it starts. It is. You, you talk about it being a lot different in, in our day, without a doubt. You know, I played in, in Southern California and, and Long Beach at the time. The big league were all the best players in, in Southern Cal, which is which is kind of a hotbed, was uh, Connie Mack. And you played yeah. at old Long Beach Stadium. And uh, that's what we did in the summer. We didn't have showcases and we're going here and there. It's, it's, I, I don't know if it's necessarily that much better of a thing the way the game is now, but it is what it is. Um, you mentioned Alaska, you mentioned Cape Cod for college players uh, in 1990, you, pr you pretty much had two options. You go to Cape Cod, you play with a wood bat, you go to the Alaska league, which has been going forever. My father played in, in Fairbanks. Sure. Uh, now Alaska's still going. 
but it but it's not prominent like it used to be. No, Cape Cod, Cape Cod, still the the top top rung, I think, for college players. Correct me if I'm wrong. But the thing I find that that is positive about today's game is there are a lot more options for college players than there used to be. It, it seemed like when I was at USC, only the elite players got to play summer ball, and you went to Alaska and Cape Cod, and if you didn't fit the, if you weren't one of the best players, you were really kind of. What are you going to do this summer? You're going to the beach. Now it seems like there's a lot more options for kids that aren't necessarily that that top prospect. No, you're totally right. There's there's leagues all over the country now that are uh, using college freshmen and sophomores to be on their teams and you know get some exposure. Now, as a scout, the scouts are still going to where the biggest group of talented players are. So, like the Cape. Right, you could go into the Cape for a week and put your eyes on 50 guys who are going to go in the top 10, 12 rounds of the draft. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. When did you make contact with a kid you were in? I remember just, and, and this is all kind of, it was a long time ago, but in high school, I kind of knew who the scouts were. You know, I knew, oh, that's that guy's with the Yankees. He'd make small talk with me. Hey, Booney, how you doing today? And you start as as players. You start to know who the guys are. If Grady Fuson's in my my ta- ah, he's with the A's. I know I know Grady. Uh, do you do you strike up conversation with any any of the kids when you're scouting them? Just to have that relationship in case one day I do draft him, or do you kind of just stay in the background? Yeah, I, I tried to get to know every player that was at least on my draft list or thinking about being on my draft list, whether that was meeting them prior to a game, after a game, talking to some parents, talking to their parents, talking to a coach, trying to get as much information and feel about their situation as I could. Now, the one thing that hindered me a little bit was I didn't get the summer to pre-work any of this because I always managed and coached our rookie teams in the summer. So when I got back after the season, it was – my fall was my big part of year. And and when you talk about when you talked about how important uh, the intangibles are with a player, I always thought that was really important. And I remember when I first came to the A's, I talked to you about that. I said it would, it's so important to know what this kid's made of. We can all sit there and say, okay, he's got a he's got a seven arm, and he's got you know here's his speed and his his bat speed and and all the tools that you use to to pretty much evaluate a player, but that unknown that does this guy really believe he's as good as we know he is, or like you mentioned in the opening guys that fly under the radar that don't just shoot out to you because they're overwhelmingly talented, but they have that intangible that makes them a big leaguer one day, you know, and you, you have certain guys that come to mind for me in my playing day. That's a guy like Eckstein with the with the Anaheim Angels he probably didn't 
didn't grade out the, the highest, but the intangibles that he had made him. And for me, was one of the keys to that 2002 Angels season was Eckstein at shortstop. That guy, sure. He, he sure. made him, he made them go, you know, runner on third, less than two Grady in the early two thousands playing the angels with all those stars they had. I'll tell you what, I don't want Eckstein at the plate. Because huh. that sucker's going to get the job done. He's going to hook those, a ground ball right down the third baseline and beat you. Or he's going to hit a home run for him, which would be a, a sack fly to the warding track. But you're not going to strike him out, and he's he's just going to get the job done. Those are things that aren't talked about enough. Um, no, because, this, you know, in today's game, they can't measure it. So with with the influx of analytics everywhere – the only thing that works with analytics is what they can measure. If they can't measure it, then it just becomes a theory. So when you think about how the game has changed with the amount of agents and, and uh, how these kids are kind of sheltered from professional baseball people at times, uh, they're scripted. You try to talk to a player and you can tell he's been scripted by his agent what to say, what not to say. So it's harder and harder and harder to get a read uh, on a player just by talking to them and, and doing the things sometimes we used to do versus watching this guy play the game over and over again, see where the instincts are, see where the feel for the game is, see the passion level, the energy level, and continue to maneuver your way around people around him that have coached him as parents, whatever it may be, and pick and choose your your questions to ask and see if you can get ahead that way. But so many of these kids are sheltered. There's colleges out there that will not let you talk to a player. Um, there's agents out there that just script everything a player and his family is going to tell you. So it becomes very difficult for for our area guys who do the most of this you know, as a cross-checker, are you doing what you did with me? We're in and out, right? We're flying in. We're driving to the ballpark. We're looking at 10 kids in the SEC tournament. We're getting on a plane, and we're going elsewhere. It wasn't necessarily our jobs to figure out, you know, the X's and O's about what makes this player tick. But after you've done it for a while, there's a lot of giveaways by just watching a player play the game and how players react around him. Isn't it amazing too that that you you talk about players being scripted and them coming to you? You know, if you're going to have a conversation with him for ten minutes and yeah. he gives you all the answers that his agent give, you're like, who the hell do you think? Who the who the hell you think you're talking to? Yeah, are you ser just, are you serious, kid? You think this is benefiting you? Yeah, I fly to Nashville and interview all these Vanderbilt guys up in the press box. You get five minutes per player, and you're just kind of going. All right, what am I getting out of this besides looking him straight in the face? Right. This is this is this is for a they're they're interviewing for a movie. Yeah. Uh, all right, talk about the scale a little bit. Uh, the the one to eight and two to two to eight. Or two to eight. And the thing that always confused me, still does, uh, because everybody has a different style when they're rating a player. They have a, a current rating and a future. Uh, and a lot of scouts put it in. Future six for argument's sake which is a little bit above big league average but they'll say now he's a four hitter well i laugh because 
you may have this big prospect in high school and they'll say current four, future seven. And I'm going, wait a minute, current four. If we put him in the big leagues, he's a four. No, if we put him in the big leagues right now, he's a two. two. But, but, but it's really, you know, there's no, it's so subjective. Just let yes, the guys in on, let, let the guys in, on, uh, listening to the show right now, uh, a little bit into that world and how you come up with your numbers and why is it, why is it at two to 10? Why is it two to eight? You know, I don't know who created it. I think it was old branch Ricky that put this thing (laughs) on the map years ago, but the grading scale is, is, is for most clubs is two to eight or 20 to 80. There are half of the clubs out there that use a middle grade. Like you mentioned a, a four hitter. Well, you could make him a 45 hitter. Uh, back in my day, I never changed that because I wanted guys to make a decision. Is he a four or is he a five? Don't hinder in between, but everybody's a little different. So obviously an eight, if you're talking about a major league hitter, is a guy that's hitting 310, 315 or above. If you're talking about power, you're talking about a guy that hits 30 bombs or above. Um, so you have all these and then from there, you, you, you go with some numbers. So uh, running speed down the line, 4-2 from the left side is average, 4-3 from the right side is average, and you just work yourself up and down that scale. Uh, you have arm grades that you grade. What, what's a forearm? What's a five-arm? What's a six-arm? Um, so, you, you know, you have all these skills with pitchers. It's, it's, it's fastball. Uh, velocity it's it's off speed it's slider curveball uh if, if a guy's got a two seamer and a sinker it's not really graded but you mentioned that in your report uh obviously change up and command so those are those are the big things that are getting graded along with some intangible things like you know arm action delivery aggressiveness uh instincts all those things are they don't really go into the um, the overall OFP number, overall future potential. But when you're when you're dealing with younger players that have not achieved big league uh, life yet, there's always projection. You know, when you look at a young college hitter coming out of college and he looks hitterish, and you think this guy's got a chance to be a 260, 270 hitter, um, obviously if you put him in the big leagues now. He's not going to do that. But after two, three, maybe four years in the minor leagues of development, training, work, uh, trial and error, here he comes. Um, and all of a sudden you see that uh, situation where he did. He became a six hitter in the big leagues. How heavily do you weigh on the intangibles personally? I know it probably fluctuates from scout to scout. Uh, organization to organization. Some probably consider that uh, they have, they more heavily weigh it. Some don't you personally, the intangibles. I think it means a lot. I think character makeup, these intangibles that you're talking about are 60, 70% of the battle. I'm very careful on which one of our scouts or player development people I trust when they relay information to me. Um, at the same time, when you work in player development like I do now, 
I can figure out a player's character, his makeup, his want to, his emotional setup, uh, probably within a week or two and much quicker than scouts can when they're out there seeing them, you know, once a month. Um, it's, 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 it doesn't mean that people don't change along the way, that they improve their attitudes and makeups. And, uh, but there's a lot of people that just get stuck um, with bad habits and attitudes and mental skills that they can't get over. Um, but, I mean, it's the heart of the player, the intangibles. Right. We can right. all find we can all find tools. Right. Uh, you know, maybe not eights across the board, but we can all find tools. It's the heart of the player, which is all this stuff you're talking about that really will be the determining factor. And I think, you know, with obviously the limited time I spent on on your side of the ledger, but the majority of, of my life was spent on the field as a player. Uh I agree with you wholeheartedly because I played with so many guys. I played with so many guys at the minor league level. I played with guy a lot of you know a, a ton of guys at the big league level. I played with great players. I played with mediocre players. I played with players that I'm impressed that they're having a career in the big leagues because of their intangibles. So I really I understand how how important that is, especially at the big league level, because you, you, how many times you see a guy you play with in AAA and then. Five years later, I'm going, man, I thought that guy was going to make it. You know, ability-wise, he had all the ability. Gets to the big leagues, it's a different ball game. That 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 stadium gets real big on him. Yeah. You know, and lights, lights get brighter, pressure gets bigger. And and there's no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. You know, some guys just aren't cut out for the big stage. They get to the big leagues, and that doesn't look like the guy you've been scouting in in, in the PCL. He's just he gets there and it's a different world. It's I, I don't know. I try to liken it to to play in your local pub and then go into Carnegie hall. You know, it's yeah, like, it's, it's different. It's different. You know, I, well, even that, for me, go ahead. That's what, that's what separates good player development uh, coaches and systems are, are coaches that can take these players from the day they're drafted and continue to work on all these intangible things that, you know, become evident in the big leagues. And even prior to just getting there, I could be sitting in AAA and having a career year. I still don't have it all figured out until I get there and face the music. Without but a doubt. But they, they, they have to have the skills uh, to handle the ups and downs, the travel, the work, the pressure, the bright lights, um, everything that goes with playing in the big leagues. And, and I laugh, Grady, because when I was coming up, or, or I get asked this all the time when, when doing an interview. It's, uh, well, it was different for you. It must not have been a big deal because you grew up the way you did. You grew up in big league clubhouses. And I laugh at them and I said, listen, growing up as a little kid, being a pain in the ass, pestering my dad's teammates, that's one thing. I said, but putting on a uniform and that being your job and going out on a big league field, that's a big deal for me too. And it was as a young player. Now, I don't know how much living the life I did as a kid helped me, but I know this, it didn't hurt me one bit, but I would like everybody else. I remember my first day in the big leagues and it was Baltimore. You know, I'm playing in Calgary, Canada. I'm killing it in triple a, I get the call. I go to the big leagues. And when I stepped in that big league box as a player for the first time, it is different. 
I, I can't explain it to people. You've got to go through it. It's, it's the space is way bigger. The decks are way higher and it's just a different, uh, stage. It's not, it's completely different than being in a triple a batter's box. And until you go through it, it's like, I can't explain it to you. Everybody's got to go through it and, and find their way. That's why it's everybody's dream. Yeah. So how do I make my dreams come true? You're right. 2400 sports is an odyssey company. 